Hello and welcome to TopCast for an extraordinary episode. And by the title, you can probably guess what it's all about. So hence a slightly different setup. I'm in a different place anyway, but I thought the darkness just adds to the mood of what we're talking about. Um, I'm not using any notes. I'm not reading anything today. This has nothing to do really with the beginning of infinity. I guess it touches on some small issues there associated with the beginning of infinity. But this will just be me thinking out loud about a particular topic. Now, because I'm in this different place and because I'm not using any notes, I don't actually have to read anything on the screen today. And so I can probably do away with my glasses. Also, I noticed that in this particular setup, things are reflecting off these glasses, so I'm going to get rid of them. If this is disconcerting to you, because I know that sometimes seeing people who normally wear glasses without them can look a bit strange, you can just listen to the audio, I suppose. Okay, so I'm going to, as I say, just be thinking out loud about this particular issue because it's been coming up on social media recently and in various other forums that I sometimes participate in. And in my own personal life, people have been asking me about it as well and what my view happens to be. And so I'm gonna take a meandering walk around the different arguments that I'm aware of. I don't believe any of these arguments. I don't think that any of them are things that are able to constrain our knowledge on this topic particularly well. But what I want to do is to present to you firstly, the thing that everybody knows about this topic, and then to try and present some alternatives that sometimes people don't tend to talk about. But even these really interesting alternative perspectives on this idea aren't things that I believe. And even though whenever people ask me about them, these other interesting ideas, these other interesting theories, which purportedly are solutions to this particular topic, aren't anything that I believe. I just raise them with people because they're the interesting counterpoints to what everyone thinks they already know about the topic. So what do people already think they know about the topic? The topic being, are we alone? Is there other life out there in the universe? And by we, I suppose we mean technologically advanced or intelligent life like us. But perhaps you just want to interpret we as any form of life whatsoever. Now, we'll discuss both of those, but let's begin with what everyone knows. What everyone knows is the universe is really, really big, really big. Our, our galaxy alone contains 200 billion stars, billion stars, that's with a B, but some people say it could be as large as 400 billion stars. It could be double that. I don't know, but I know it's a big number. And our galaxy, of course, is just one of very, very many throughout the universe. There could be 200 billion galaxies within our observable universe. And of course, the observable universe is just a part of a much greater whole. In fact, the greater whole could be spatially infinite. We don't know. Some people have said, some, when I say some people, I mean some astronomers have claimed something like 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. I don't know. I know it's a big number. Everyone knows it's a big number. Everyone knows the universe is really, really big. What we also know is that almost all of these stars in all of these galaxies have planets. And many, many of those planets are going to be solid, like the Earth, terrestrial planets. And terrestrial planets are kind of what we're looking for because that's where you might get complicated living things. We don't know. There could be complicated living things flying through the clouds of Jupiter, for all we know. There could be complicated living things swimming in the seas of Europa, or the ocean of Europa, which is one of the moons of Jupiter, which has this icy crust beneath which, I think six kilometers beneath this is the thickness of this ice, beneath which there is supposedly an ocean of water which could contain bacteria, or it could contain fish or whales, or who knows? I doubt it, but we can talk about that as well. 
What we also know, and what scientists are coming to understand really well, is that our previous ideas of the conditions required in order to sustain life and to allow it to thrive are changing all the time. The previously thought of as barriers to what could possibly enable life to survive have been shattered over and again, specifically by these little critters called extremophiles. And an extremophile is something that likes extreme conditions. And we used to think that, well, a good way to, let's say, sterilize something is to boil it in water because nothing can survive in boiling water. The DNA denatures itself. It's not stable at really high temperatures. Boiling your water is a really good way to make it safe, at least to kill the cholera or to kill the nasty bacteria that might otherwise cause you sickness from drinking impure water. You should boil your water if you are unsure about its quality. But we've learned over the last few decades, there are actually archaea, a certain kind of bacteria that is thermophilic, that will survive at 105, 110. I think the highest number I've seen is 130 degrees Celsius, 30 degrees Celsius above the boiling point of water, and this little critter will survive. There are other kinds of critters, by critter I mean bacteria, or archaea, or something simple like that, which can survive at even lower temperatures, lower than the freezing point of water. They will happily survive in ice that is minus 15 degrees Celsius or something, which we normally thought would cause the uh, cell, which is a sphere full of water, to explode or to shatter. But now we know that these kind of bacteria contain chemicals like antifreeze, which actually protect them from such extreme environments. So there are these extreme environments in which life on Earth can survive. So we used to think, for example, that the habitable zone, the zone around a star where life would be able to survive and thrive was quite narrow. But now we think, well, if you can have bacteria or archaea that are surviving well above the boiling point of water, well, then that might mean that places that are well above the temperature of the earth could still sustain life and places that are cold might still sustain life. If you're interested in extremophile stuff, look up archaea or thermophiles and sometimes complicated creatures, relatively complicated creatures seem to have this capacity to survive in really hostile environments as well. You can look up the water bear or the tardigrade, I think it's called, and this thing will happily survive really high pressures, high temperatures, low temperatures, high oxygen environments, low oxygen environments, high salt, low salt. It's really robust. So maybe there's life out there that is able to survive in these kind of environments, which means the places that we think that life could survive out there in the universe around stars is much, much greater. So there is this circumstellar habitable zone, the place around a star where a planet should be, such that the temperature is not too hot, not too cold, but just right, in order to support life. At this point, I should, of course, interject because lots of people say, well, you're only talking about life as we know it. You're only talking about the kind of life that we're familiar with. Well, no, not necessarily. It could be completely different. There might be a life based on silicon. There's lots of reasons chemically speaking, that we think that silicon, for example, isn't a good substitute for carbon. It can't form these really long chains and rings, although it has a valence of four, it seems like it's similar, chemically speaking, to silicon. There's a lot of challenges to trying to create complicated structures out of silicon. Here on Earth, all you get is silicates in rocks, which are about the most complicated things that silicon will produce. You don't get big long strands, big long molecules like the DNA strand made out of silicon. So. 
It seems like carbon is the way in which to encode information in complicated ways in order to produce the genetic information that you need to pass on from one generation to the next. Carbon seems to be the thing, the physical way in which life might instantiate its own information. Nevertheless, yes, of course, people can object to say, well, again, you're constrained by your own uh, imagination. Maybe there are other ways, things you can't even imagine, things we can't even detect. And aha, well, if it's something we can't detect, then we've left the realm of science for now. So we can only talk about the kind of life that would be detectable. That's what scientists are interested in doing. They're interested in finding it. And by definition, if something isn't detectable, and if it's something we can't possibly imagine, then there's no point trying to search for something you can't imagine and you can't detect anyway. You know, I like to entertain the idea that maybe there are civilizations made of dark matter. Dark matter is this stuff that we have no way of detecting except through its gravitational influence on other large things out there in space, like entire galaxies which rotate too fast for us to assume that all the matter there is actually luminous matter that we can detect. In other words, see. Dark matter is something we cannot see, we cannot see it, but we know that it's there. However, we don't know what it's made of, but maybe, maybe it can form complicated structures. Maybe whatever this dark matter stuff is, people can be formed out of it. Whole civilizations might be here in this room surrounding us made of dark matter. There might be dark matter people. We just have no way of seeing them, no way of detecting them. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Or is that a comforting thought to know that there are actually other people there right beside you? This is completely and utterly the realm of science fiction, and I do not believe it for a moment. But I'm not saying it's impossible, that's all. But that's not saying much, saying that something is physically possible, we just don't know how. Okay, I've just changed my audio levels because listening back to myself, I sound a little bit distorted. So I've turned things down a little bit. Hopefully this is a little bit more comforting to your ears. Let's see. Um, I was saying that these are the things that people already know. People already know the universe is huge. It contains hundreds of billions of galaxies, and each of those hundreds of billions of galaxies contains hundreds of billions of stars. And those stars have planets around them, and many of them are going to have conditions which are just right for the kind of life we find here on Earth, even if that life is extremophile life and can only survive in hostile environments. That means that there's a lot of places throughout all the galaxies in the universe to harbor life, to have a place where life can not only survive, but thrive. I'll just throw in one little additional fact. There's not only a habitable zone around stars, namely the place where we think water would be not too hot and boil away and not too cold and just freeze completely solid, but with liquid, we are basically solutions of a kind. You know, we are chemicals dissolved in water as is every other animal and plant and life form on Earth. We are things that use water as a solvent to transport around the nutrients that we need inside of our bodies. So we're looking for water out there, or places at least that water might be found. And once you find the water, maybe you find the life nearby, within it, somewhere. There's a caveat to all of this, which is that there is also something called a galactic habitable zone. Now, if we cast our minds back to just after the Big Bang, there was a very first generation of stars. And of necessity, that first generation of stars must have been made out of only hydrogen and helium, because that's pretty much all that was created during the Big Bang. There was hydrogen and helium and trace amounts of lithium and maybe the smallest amounts of beryllium, but nothing else, absolutely nothing else. Now, given that that's the case, given that that's the case, that all you've got is basically hydrogen and helium, 
any stars that form will be made out of hydrogen and helium, and any planets that form around those stars would also be made out of hydrogen and helium, which means you won't have the opportunity for complicated chemistry. You won't have the opportunity for a terrestrial planet, a rocky planet like the Earth and around these first generation of stars. So if you have metal-poor stars, metal-poor regions in a galaxy, by metal-poor we mean, astronomers mean, anything more heavy, more dense, more complicated, higher up on the periodic table than helium. So lithium counts as a metal. It is technically a metal in chemistry anyway. But so too lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, all of these things, metals or non-metals to a chemist, are metals to an astronomer. We just call them metals, okay? Anything that is heavier than hydrogen or helium. So if you have just hydrogen and helium, then you can't have complicated chemistry because helium doesn't bond with anything at all. It doesn't even bond with itself. And hydrogen in such a condition can bond with itself, but then you've got the most complicated thing that you've got in the universe is a H2 molecule, which isn't particularly interesting. Hydrogen can't bond with helium. That doesn't work chemically either. So you need, you need at least a second generation of stars. You need that first generation made of hydrogen and helium to explode and to scatter their remnants throughout the galaxy, enriching the interstellar medium such that you can then have a planet that is rocky and then on the rocky planet you might get some complicated chemistry going. But this leads to the idea of a galactic habitable zone. If you have a first generation of stars, stars that don't contain any metals, anything more complicated than helium, then you won't have complicated chemistry. But there are certain regions in a galaxy where it's metal poor. It's so metal poor, in other words, there's so much hydrogen and helium and so little of anything else in the periodic table that scientists think that you won't get terrestrial planets in those parts of the galaxy. And so you can map parts of a galaxy to find out using spectroscopy how much metals are in certain parts. And I think in many of these, in many galaxies that we see out there, there could be a galactic habitable zone far away from the central bulge of a, of a I think of a, um, uh, a spiral galaxy. Um, that there are metal poor regions around, in galaxies and there might be metal poor entire galaxies as well. So not all the galaxies might actually be capable after all of creating um, or, or generating sustaining complex life, let alone intelligent life. But that said, we're going to ignore that complication for the fact for, the, for, for this particular argument. This argument that everybody knows, this argument that the universe is so huge, so implacably vast, that it has to be teeming with life. It has to be. There's just so many planets. Don't you realize? The number is astronomical. It's literally astronomical. How many planets are out there? Well, someone, a, a famous astronomer on Twitter, Ethan Seagull, I think his name is, um, he's got a number. Lots of people have got numbers. You ask an astronomer, they'll give you a number about how many planets are out there in the galaxy, out there in the universe. Ethan Seagull has 10 to the power of 25 there. Okay, so that's his number. That's a huge number. That's a huge number. And so now let's just do the thought experiment that everyone kind of does. If even only 1% or less than that, a fraction of a percent of those planets out there had some bacteria, then you only need a fraction of a percent of those planets that have the bacteria to evolve into complicated life forms. And you will absolutely certainly have millions upon millions of advanced civilizations out there somewhere. You only need the tiniest percentage. It's simple maths to do. 10 to the power of 25 planets. A tiny fraction of those can evolve life and a tiny fraction of those will evolve into intelligent life. And you still have a vast, vast number of places where intelligent civilizations will arise. This is the argument that we all know. But apparently the first person to come up with this argument and to think of this argument uh, gets to 
name this argument. And that was Enrico Fermi. Enrico Fermi, the physicist. I've never understood why it gets to be called, named after him because I'm sure a lot of other people have thought precisely the same thing. But so the story goes, Fermi, the physicist, was sitting there at a coffee table or a lunch table or something with his colleagues and they're discussing exactly this. They're discussing this kind of question. And Fermi asks the classic question in response to all of the facts that I've just laid out there, although it would have been back in the day when Fermi was around talking about this, so he wouldn't have known exactly what we know now in terms of number of stars in the galaxy, number of galaxies within the universe, the proportion of stars that contain planets, I think it's almost all of them. Um, he didn't know all of these facts, but he had certainly an understanding, certainly a reasonable understanding that the universe is vast. And because the universe is vast, it's got to contain life there somewhere. And some of that life has to have evolved into intelligent life. And so Fermi asked, where are they? Well, where are they? Where are all of these civilizations? And that is where the interesting arguments come now. And lots of people have advanced arguments over the years. And so I've just given you the argument that everyone kind of knows that they should be out there somewhere. Now, if you believe most science fiction movies, what they're doing is they're hiding. They're hiding. Um, uh, and if you're interested in UFOs, if you're one of these people who, like Joe Rogan, is extreme, is just fascinated by the possibility that there are these things like Tic Tacs out there. If you've been looking at that um, conspiracy theory recently that... Um, that the, 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 the Navy or the Air Force in America has tracked these things called Tic Tacs. And these Tic Tacs apparently show technology that is just incompatible with anything we have right now. And people are very, very impressed by what they've seen because uh, these are Air Force pilots and this is the military uh, actually admitting, the American military admitting that they have something there that they cannot explain. And I am with Neil deGrasse Tyson on this that in a sense, in a sense, that's where the conversation stops until you have far better evidence. You need far better evidence. It's a UFO, perhaps, but the U stands for unidentified. We don't know what it is. But to leap from it's something we don't know, we don't know what it is, it's unidentified, to it's an alien that's crossed the galaxy using technology that's far beyond ours and they've used warp drives and they've gone through wormholes and who knows what, is too much of a leap. It's too much of a leap. They're, all things being equal, something more simple is probably going to be the answer. Um, is is going to be a better explanation. Is going to be a better explanation. I'll give you one. Experimental military technology, which the U.S. government absolutely does not want anyone to know anything about. Uh, and so, even if their own pilots in the Navy who uh, don't have the sufficient clearance to know about this stuff. Uh, discover it, they're not going to admit to it. But they don't want to appear to be covering it up either. So they're willing to publish something and to say, yes, we found this thing and we can't explain it. But they might very well be able to explain it if they don't want to tell anyone. So who knows, who knows? There could be secret military technology out there. It could simply be, uh, here's, a, here's, a, here's a possibility, it could be military technology that tricks other advanced military technology. So if you look at this video of this tic-tac of this UFO, this flying saucer type thing, it's not a flying saucer as such, but it's apparently alien technology. Maybe it's something that's designed specifically to confuse, bemuse, upset the systems and the pilot of a Navy or an Air Force fighter jet. Maybe that's specifically what it's for, to distract them. 
because that's a pretty good defense mechanism. I mean, if the, 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 the enemy air force has decided to invade you, if you can hit a button and some sort of technology dazzles their eyes and causes them to hallucinate and to think that they're seeing UFOs, that's pretty cool. That would um, put them off <laughs> trying to bomb you while they, they run away from the alien. Okay, whatever the case, I'm not really interested in pursuing the details of that particular example. Just to say that, are the aliens trying to hide from us? It appears as though they don't want to be seen. In either case, they're not doing very well, by the way. If it is the case they don't want to be seen, they keep on, be they keep on being seen. They keep on being spotted by us primitive humans using our simple cameras and always in poor resolution as well. Whatever the case, they're not doing well. Or they want to be seen. They want to be captured on a film, in which case, they're not doing particularly well because they're not just landing in Times Square or in Trafalgar Square or in Sydney Harbour or somewhere, okay? If they want to be seen, then they could easily be seen if they wanted to be seen. If they wanted to hide and they have such advanced technology, surely they could hide better than what they have been hiding. I really do not think that we've been visited though, so that, that's, that's my cards on the table. I think that, um, that, that, what, that thus far what people have brought forward in saying that this is evidence of alien technology, alien life, is very, very poor, okay? It does not reach the threshold that I think could cause anyone to say, oh yes, absolutely, that is uh, evidence of alien intelligence of some kind. However, we might still think, we might still think that the answer to Fermi's paradox, Fermi's question, where are they, is that they are hiding. Now, they might be hiding because they're concerned, they're concerned about being detected by other, even more advanced life forms, which could be hostile, which could be hostile. And so aren't we stupid? We silly humans are sitting there transmitting our radio broadcasts out there like a beacon, allowing everyone to know that we're here and we shouldn't be. We should be hiding like the aliens are hiding. The aliens are hiding from each other because they know that not only is the universe a hostile place and not really, and not really friendly with all of its black holes and all of its supernovas going off and all of the cosmic events that could cause the destruction of their civilization. But there are other alien civilizations out there that might take over their own civilization. Let's just do away with this one really, really quickly. The argument here is precisely, well, it's a very similar argument to the concern about robots taking over the world, right? That artificial intelligence is going to get so advanced that it's going to turn into this Terminator type thing and it's going to want to wipe us all out. Now, I think in both cases, the Robots are going to take over the world, they're going to want to kill us all, destroy us all, find out that we're useless and we're in the way of their advancing technology and their advancing knowledge and we are just slow, useless humans that need to be exterminated. And the aliens who, if only they could detect us, would come down and exterminate the surface of the planet because they would think that we're evil or they would want to take over our resources, something like that. I guess here is the beginning of infinity style response to that, and the beginning of infinity style response to that, which I would endorse, is that in both cases, the robots that are going to take over and the aliens which are going to take over, the aliens, by the way, that have flown across the galaxy or across the universe using technology far beyond our capabilities right now, and the robots, which are able to think so much faster. In both cases, they've made a lot of progress. They've made a huge amount of progress, a vast amount of progress, at rates possibly faster than we are making our progress. So they're thinking better than us. Certainly on the topic of technology and in science, 
Now, if we just stick with the aliens for a moment, how is it that they've been able to make such progress in science and technology? Well, there's only one way. There's only one way to have a fully open society, a critical society, a society that resembles ours only better in many ways. It's certainly better technologically, which means it must be better mathematically and scientifically. It must also be the case that it's better politically because the progress that it's been able to make and sustain over so many years, possibly millions of years, maybe billions of years, unlikely to be billions, but let's say millions of years. This is a society that is super advanced. Maybe it's a society that's only a thousand years ahead of us. We can get back to that, but I think it would have to be millions of years ahead of us. Okay, It'd be a remarkable coincidence if it's within sort of a thousand years either side of um, how it, where our society is right now in terms of its technology and knowledge. More than likely, if we detect an advanced civilization out there, it's not going to be at exactly the same point in evolution and technology and progress that we're at. It won't be a long time behind us because we'll have no means of detecting it. If it's many you know, centuries behind us, it only needs to be actually one century or so behind us, and we won't be able to detect it because there won't be radio signals being put out by that particular um, society, that particular technology. So more than likely, it's going to be a million years ahead of us, something like that, and then we'll be able to detect it. Or then they could visit us. Anyway, if such a society is out there, if such an alien civilization is out there, and they're coming to visit us, they're not going to want to exterminate us. If they're making progress in science and technology and of necessity politics, politically, in order to sustain an environment where they can make this rapid progress over time that is stable without destroying themselves, they will have advanced morality. They won't be looking to exterminate us. They will be better at us in every domain, mathematically, scientifically, technologically, and morally. Morally, they'll be more advanced than what we are. They will understand compassion in a way that we can barely comprehend. They are not going to start exterminating species randomly. We're already at the point where almost all of us understand that all humans are equal, that we are all the same. It doesn't matter what your race, background, ethnicity is. So we've already made that progress. Now we're kind of making a kind of pro people would say it's a kind of progress where we're taking into account our circle of concerns, our circle of compassion is expanding out beyond just humans into other animals. And people are very concerned about other animals. This is what we're doing. This is what we human beings, us pathetic, ignorant human beings, so far behind these advanced aliens, this is the way we're going. And that is progress. That really is progress. Increasing the amount of concern, kindness, and compassion for others, not being completely callous in the way in which we treat other life forms. So, would an advanced alien civilization act just like the supposed conquistadors did in the past? Would they be tribal in the way that humans used to be? People often bring up the conquistadors in this. Won't the aliens be just like that? They will see us just like the conquistadors of Spain saw the Inca of South America. They will take them over. They will either bring disease or wipe them out deliberately through violence. And I think this is completely incorrect. If we, human beings of the year 2021, were to find an Incan civilization somewhere, hitherto undiscovered, would we go in and destroy them? Would that be what we do? We do exactly the opposite, by the way. We already know there are tribes there in the Amazon, and people are not, more advanced people are not going in there. 
or if they did, insofar as we do, we go in to help. We try and bring them medicine. We try and bring them technology. Uh, I think it's actually wrong when we take a step back and say, let's not interfere. I think that's actually wrong because I think many of those people at times would, if they could, have access to the kind of technology that we have. They would, if they could, cure the diseases that their children are suffering. When their children get sick or start dying of cancer, we should want to help them. None of us want to go in there and exterminate them with machine guns. No one has that. But apparently, that's what people think about super advanced aliens. The super advanced aliens aren't going to be super advanced in their morality. They're going to be super backward in their morality. They're going to be acting like Genghis Khan or something. So they've increased their knowledge in every single domain possible, except morality. And I think this is a strict contradiction. I don't think such an alien life form could actually ever become technologically advanced because the precondition for doing science is an open society. It's being open to criticism and understanding that everyone has their own ideas, that everyone should be able to criticize each other's ideas, that a another creature that's able to communicate, another creature that is intelligent, might have an idea that would be useful, and this is the only way you can advance technologically and scientifically. So therefore you need a morality that takes into account what a person is and the value that a person can provide. It doesn't matter if that person thinks a little bit more slowly, or that person can't remember quite as much as what you can. The person might nonetheless come up with an idea. It doesn't matter who they are, they can come up with an idea that could improve your own ideas. The aliens will understand that. The aliens will understand that. And in fact, the aliens will understand that a lot better than us. And I also, we can dispense with the, what's this, the Star Trek idea, the, the prime maxim or whatever it's called, I can't remember, but you know, that the, the people in, in the Star Trek ship, uh, they were not to interfere. Don't interfere um, with alien life that you come across. And I just think that that wouldn't happen either. For the same reason that... Um, the problem of evil hasn't been solved in theology. If you've got an all-powerful God, an all-knowing God, then it makes no sense that he's also an all-good God. Because if he was all good and he was all-knowing, then he would know about the suffering that's going to happen tomorrow. That when the tsunami happens and kills 40,000 innocent infant children, there is no good to come of that. There is no good to come of that. The only good that could possibly come of that is that people then create the knowledge of ensuring that that never happens again. But was it worth it for those 40,000 children to have died? Wouldn't it have been better if God had have come down and just made sure that they didn't get killed? So no one in theology has ever managed to properly solve this problem of evil, that evil natural disasters happen that people have no control over, which cause untold amounts of suffering, and that if God, if God existed, then God should have done something to prevent that sort of catastrophe. And this is why it causes some people to go, well, that kind of God mustn't exist, can't exist, it's incompatible, it's illogical, it's strictly illogical. So too with the aliens then. The super advanced aliens would have an ethic, surely would have an ethic, that when they look down at the earth, if they've seen the earth, would see all of the suffering that they could help to solve by bringing their knowledge, if not their resources, certainly their knowledge, to the human race, to help us, to, to help us to advance so that we can cure disease, to prevent earthquakes, to stop hurricanes in their tracks, to travel to other planets, to survive in intergalactic space, who knows what. But an alien civilization that's super, super advanced and who looked on 
and did nothing would have to be super evil. But then we get back to the whole problem of such a super evil alien wouldn't have been able to make the kind of rapid progress needed to travel across the galaxy. And it wouldn't have been able to sustain over such a long period of time that kind of progress without destroying its own members in some way. Because that's the only way that such an evil kind of idea of allowing people to die who otherwise didn't need to, or allowing people to suffer who otherwise didn't need to, if only they had your knowledge, that kind of alien couldn't have existed and survived and thrived for so long. So that's that. But still, I'm still circling Fermi's paradox and the things that many people kind of already know. These things about the fact that the universe is extremely large and therefore, you know, with 10 to the power of 25 planets, even if only a small fraction of them could actually sustain life, and even if only a small fraction of those actually did go on to have life on them, and even if only a small fraction of those went on to evolve intelligent life, there should still be countless numbers of civilizations out there. Where are they? Okay. Here's the other answer that I find far more interesting than any of that. And I'm going to credit uh, a lecturer of mine, a past lecturer of mine, Charlie Lineweaver. Here's his webpage. I've mentioned him before on my other podcasts. I find him wonderfully prolific and diverse in his interests. Here's a sample of his papers here. And he's talked about, he's written papers on the rapid biogenesis on Earth, which is an interesting kind of constraint on what we know about how life evolved here on planet Earth. And here on planet Earth... It seems as though, as soon as the conditions were right, life appeared. Because when the Earth first formed, something like 4.52 billion years ago, it was a pretty hostile place. Molten rock, it had a reducing atmosphere, in other words, there was no oxygen anywhere, um, just completely sterile, probably no liquid water, stuff like that. But it cooled down over time. And once it was cool enough to have liquid water, pretty much... The geological evidence seems to suggest life appeared. But what was that early life like? Well, it was bacteria, archaea of a kind. Now, that archaea, that, that very simple bacteria, is a thermophilic bacteria, so it makes sense when we talk about thermophiles, the, the first life on Earth would have formed as soon as the Earth was cool enough, but still really hot, still really hot, okay? So it would have been near boiling point. And so these very first life forms probably evolved in an environment where there was very hot liquid water and no oxygen, but managed to survive in that terribly hostile environment. Then what happened next? What happened next? Well, the Earth continued to cool, but for approximately the next two billion years, something like that, 1.9 billion years, nothing happened. Nothing much of consequence happened. 1.9 billion years. The bacteria didn't evolve into anything complicated. They remained bacteria, they remained single-celled organisms. It was 600 million years ago, 600 million years ago, that the first complicated life arose and evolved. Sim very simple, multicellular life. We're not talking dinosaurs, we're not talking humans, we're not talking frogs, we're talking microscopic life for the most part. So that was 600 million years ago. For the first 1.92 billion years of life on Earth, there was bacteria. So the bacteria didn't evolve into anything complicated. So what does this suggest? It suggests that given the opportunity, bacteria by and large don't evolve into more complicated things. They remain bacteria. 
the reasons why the bacteria became more complicated evolved into something that was multicellular rather than unicellular. It's, it's a topic of discussion and an open question in science still. No one knows. No one knows. And by the way, once we get that multicellular organism, we still don't have an animal. We don't have anything like a koala or a dog or a bird or a fish, anything like that. Now, we had to wait even longer for that to appear. And, and we went through phases of where the, the, the surface of the planet was covered in trilobites. The trilobites came and they went. They disappeared again. But they weren't particularly complicated. How long would we have to wait if we populated a planet with trilobites for them to evolve into making radio telescopes? Okay, so Charlie Lineweaver you know, wrote this paper with Tamara Davis, I think, another astronomer in Australia, talking about this fact, okay? The rapid biogenesis that happened on Earth, the rapidity, how quickly the bacteria appeared on the Earth, can tell us something about life in the rest of the universe. That perhaps it's the case that as soon as the conditions are right somewhere, as soon as a planet is reasonably cool, as soon as the planet has some water on its surface, you'll get life. You'll get life. This is a promising thing if you're interested in there being life out there in the universe. This seems to suggest... And we've only got one data point, of course, the Earth, so it doesn't tell us much. It's not really science if we've got one data point, but you know, this is the best we can do. We've got a, a kind of a, a problem in that we have on Earth a situation where it appears as though life arose very quickly as soon as the conditions were right. So it doesn't seem like it's that hard for life to arise. But I've made this point in another podcast as well, that we have an on the other hand here. On the other hand... There's a set of experiments called the Miller-Urey experiments. The Miller-Urey experiments are absolutely fascinating. They were first done in, I think, 1952, something like that, going from memory. And Miller and Urey, they, essentially the idea was you take a flask, you put all the chemicals that you think the early Earth had, all the inanimate chemicals, carbon dioxide, maybe some oxygen, nitrogen, and you have this soup, ammonia, water, you put it all into a flask, you put a cap on the flask, and then you send some electricity through the flask and you shine some lights at it, ultraviolet light, and you know, try and replicate what the sun is like. The electricity is supposed to replicate what the lightning is, does. And then you leave it for a month, a year, and you see what's in the flask at the end of that time. Miller and Urey, of course, had high hopes, I think, that maybe something would have crawled out of the flask. Well, not exactly, but maybe they would have made bacteria. What they made were amino acids. And this was very exciting at the time. At the time, everyone went, well, amino acids, that's pretty cool. We started off with just these really simple molecules of, you know, maybe some carbon dioxide and oxygen, hydrogen, water, and nitrogen. And what we get at the end of it is an amino acid, which is a building block of a protein, which can go into becoming a nucleic acid, which can become DNA, and that's life. So it seems like we're on the road. We're on the road. Maybe if we left the flask a little bit longer, we would get proteins. We would get proteins. And maybe left it a little bit longer, we could get nucleic acids. And then we'd have a cell. This was the story. Of course, making amino acids it does not really put us on the path of making complicated life or of making any life at all. Making amino acids is kind of like walking along a road and seeing a pile of bricks and expecting that the next thing that you will see along that road is it's an opera house or a skyscraper. Now, depending upon where you are, perhaps, yes, you might indeed think that. But if you're seeing very simple bricks, it might be an indication of perhaps a house coming up. 
but really you don't have anything to go on. You're just extrapolating from what you think is the necessary logical progression of these things. But there is nothing in science which suggests that once you're, you've got amino acids, you will definitely then get proteins, that this is necessarily what's going to happen. And we've also found since the Miller-Urey experiments that amino acids are really, really common throughout the entire universe. We can find them using spectroscopy in clouds of nebula out there in the galaxy. So amino acids are kind of, they are necessary building blocks. Yes, they're a part of life so far as we can tell, but we haven't found complicated proteins. And I don't think that even the repeats of Miller-Urey's experiments, the modern day analogues of these experiments, where we have tried to replicate conditions such that they are far more bio-friendly than the original ones that Miller and Urey did. Miller and Urey didn't really know what the early Earth was like. Now we have a better idea, better understanding. I don't think any of those have produced much fruit either. So here we have two competing ideas. On the one hand, the Miller-Urey experiments seem to suggest it's hard to make life out of inanimate chemicals. And on the other hand, we have the line weaver type stuff who says, well, statistically speaking, it looks as though life appeared on Earth really, really soon. And so maybe this gives us some clue as to how soon it would appear on other planets as well. So the line weaver one says, life might be more common than what we think. But the Miller-Urey one says, life might not be that common at all because it appears too hard to make complicated chemicals. Now I'm going to come back to line weaver later on, but I'll just interject with another name here, and that's Peter Slezak. I credit him with this argument. And the argument goes like this. Earlier on we were talking about the sheer number of planets in the universe, an absolutely astronomical number. Astronomical. Well, I want to present you with a number that will completely blow out of the water this astronomical number, that will make this astronomical number seem like a pittance in comparison. And here's the way we're going to do it. We're going to consider evolution, evolution by natural selection. Now, a little a quick lesson on evolution. There are things called convergent features of evolution. And a convergent feature of evolution is something that keeps cropping up in life forms that evolve independently of one another. Let's consider the wing. The wing existed in insects. Long ago, it evolved, and it has spread throughout the insect world. Lots of insects have wings. Independently, it evolved in dinosaurs. There were winged dinosaurs. And independently again, there were winged birds. And also, certain mammals have wings as well, which evolved independently of others. So wings are things that just seem to keep appearing in life forms throughout the geologic fossil record. So lots of species have, have had wings. It's a useful feature. Evolutionists found this is a solution. There's a niche there or a niche in order for these winged creatures to fill and survive and thrive. Wings are useful. Wings are a convergent feature of evolution. How often has intelligence arisen? How often has intelligence arisen? Intelligence of the human kind, the creative kind, the, in David Deutsch's words, the ability to create explanations kind, the universal explainer kind. Well, it seems as though here on Earth, it arose once. It arose once. 
not independently in many different ways. Now, it might be the case that there coexisted with Homo sapiens other kinds of hominoids which were also intelligent. But I want to suggest that all of these intelligent hominoids, if indeed there were multiples side by side, and it seems as though there were, had a common ancestor. There was a first universal explainer. There was a first human being type creature who was a creative thinker, who was different to the ones that went before. There was a discrete change in the genetics in some way, which took whatever the creature was that didn't have this creative capacity to generate explanations into one that could. Whatever it was like slightly before that, I don't know. I'm conjecturing. But I imagine there was a common ancestor of these intelligent, creative thinking species. And we are the sole descendant of that creature. We are the sole descendant. Homo sapiens that exist today are the only living extant representative of this particular species. So there's one kind. There's one kind, I think. It's not like the wing. It's not like the eye. This creative brain appears to have only appeared once. It's not a convergent feature of evolution. And in fact, the experiment was done. The experiment was done. And other people have observed this. Other people have observed this. But Lineweaver talks about, and various other people have talked about how, well, the experiment, the natural experiment was run here on Earth. By which I mean, 200 million years ago, I think approximately, the continents were separated. So Europe, Asia was quite separate to Africa, completely separate to Australia, separate to North and South America. So these are kind of like experiments, natural experiments. Let's populate them with living things and let's see what happens. Well, up there in Europe, you have some badgers evolving and squirrels. And over in Asia, you have some lions and tigers. And in North America, you have some bears. And in South America, you have some jaguars and other critters getting about. Australia, we have kangaroos. Only in one place, Africa, did humans evolve. Did humans evolve. And they evolved the capacity very quickly to, well, not very quickly, as we've talked about, they have static societies, but they evolved the capacity to have complicated civilizations. And that included the ability to study astronomy and to listen out for radio signals from outer space using radio telescopes. So that kind of creative capacity to build technology and so on and so forth evolved once in Africa. So the, the thought experiment is, left alone, how long would it take for the creatures in North and South America to evolve into this kind of creature that could do such a thing? Leaving a bear alone for as long as you like, a brown bear, is it going to start to build an engineering company? Is it going to start to write down Euclid's elements or poetry? No. What about in Australia? When are the kangaroos going to evolve, evolve some intelligence? Well, they won't. This is the fallacy of intelligent design. Evolution, or Lamarckism, evolution does not have sight. It cannot see ahead to try and aim for a particular thing. And it doesn't appear given blind evolution, which is what we actually have, that there is any sense in which intelligence is a real niche, that it is a thing that creatures evolve towards. Now, we have it, 
but we are just looking backwards from ourselves. And we are looking back from ourselves and going, well, clearly everything has evolved to us. We're the pinnacle. But Lineweaver makes the point, by the way, this is called the encephalization quotient, which is the, 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 the size of your brain relative to the rest of your body. And we have a really big brain relative to the rest of the size of our body. And so we look back uh, in the evolution that has led to us, the line, the lineage that we follow, and see that as we go backwards, the brains get smaller and the bodies get bigger. And we are the pinnacle of that. And so everything appears to have led to us. Lineweaver makes the very salient argument that, well, an African elephant could do the same, but with their trunk, the nasalization quotient. Because from the African elephant's point of view, looking backwards, trunks got ever shorter in the past, in the fossil record. And so it appears as though evolution has been aiming for an ever longer trunk. So too with giraffes, ever longer necks. Everything that exists now, every extant species that exists right now can do the same thing, can look back and trace the evolutionary lineage that led to them at the pinnacle. But that is just a false way of looking at evolution. Evolution is blind. It's not aiming for anything in particular. Everything is kind of an accident that happens to fit in a particular environment. And unlike the wing, so for example, um, birds might very well look back and go, well, everything's been aiming towards something that can fly. That would be a stronger argument because at least then it can point to other species that also fly. Why? Because it's a convergent feature of evolution and lots of different species, lots of different classes of animals and creatures have the capacity to fly. But none of them, except for us, have the capacity to think in the way that we do. So we shouldn't expect that evolution leads to intelligent life. That's the line weaver part of the argument. Now, Peter Slezak, who's an academic at the University of New South Wales, uh, a philosopher more than a physicist, he, he, had, he had something to kind of add to this, to really constrain it and to really pull any hope that you had that there might be intelligent life out there from under you. And again, I just want to emphasize, I don't believe any of these things. I don't know what the truth is. I just want to, in this episode, present to you some of the novel, interesting arguments that maybe you haven't heard before. And here's Slezak's argument, and I love it, to tell you the truth, because it's a criticism, I don't believe it, I just say it's a, it's a criticism of that argument that I began the entire episode with, that argument about astronomical numbers, 10 to the power of 25 planets, 10, or sorry, a one followed by 25 zeros, that's the number of planets in the universe, that's phenomenal. An astronomical number. Well, here's the number that's going to blow that out of the water. Absolutely blow that out of the water. Make that number appear as a pittance, a, a, a tiny number by comparison. Here's how we do it. Here's the thought experiment. Imagine that you're a human being and you're looking back at all the steps in evolutionary terms that have led to the human being. How many would there be? We all started all species that exist on Earth now started from that first single-celled life form, that bacteria or archaea, that very microscopic thing, single-celled, that existed billions of years ago. And for which for billions of years didn't change, by the way, so far as we can tell. How many steps are there between evolutionary steps, discrete evolutionary changes in the DNA, from that first bacteria, single-celled thing, to human beings. You know, this single-celled thing, it's, 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 
it's evolving from the single cell thing into the, the, the multicellular thing into some sort of fish thing. You've seen the pictures, you know, and then it becomes like a, a fish thing that's got legs, like some sort of amphibian. And the amphibian thing becomes like a reptile sort of thing. And the reptile becomes a rat. And then the rat thing becomes like a monkey thing, which becomes more upright. And eventually you get to a human. This occurs over billions of years, billions of years this takes. How many discrete steps is there? Millions? Thousands? Okay, let's be really, really, really conservative. Let's say, and this is obviously fantasy talk, but let's say there's only a hundred. Let's say there's only a hundred such steps. Completely unrealistic. There's way more than that, but for the purpose of my argument, I want to make the number as small as possible. Because I said I'm going to generate a really big number here, so I'm going to present you the smallest possible big number. Let's say there's only a hundred. Now, each of those steps that led to us, that necessarily led to us, each of those steps that led to us, that didn't have to lead to us, but led to us, necessarily was required in order to lead to us, but we can get back to that. What chance does any one of those steps have of occurring? It could have occurred or not. You know, the, 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 the lizard thing didn't have to turn into the rat thing. Well, the fish didn't have to turn into the, the fish with legs that could survive in an atmosphere rather than in the ocean. Maybe each of those steps has like a one in a million chance of happening. Maybe one in a thousand chance of happening. Let's be conservative. Let's be really generous. Let's say any of those steps had a one in ten chance of happening. It's a pretty high probability. Now, what we have is this situation. Let's say we've got those hundred steps and each of those hundred steps has a one in ten chance of occurring. Well, that means that for any two of them in a row, that would be one in 10 times one in 10 chance of occurring, a one in 100 chance of occurring for both of them to, simul to happen consecutively in just the right order to lead to a human being, the only species that we know of on the face of the planet that has the capacity for creative thought, or leading to the common ancestor that we had with other intelligent species that existed on the planet. There was this first universal explainer, this first creatively thinking human being. Let's say there's a hundred steps. Each of those steps has a one in 10 chance of occurring. Then what we have, the mathematics works out like this. It's one in 10 times one in 10 times one in 10. It's one in 10 times one in 10, a hundred times, or one in 10 to the power of a hundred. Now, you don't have to know much maths to know that this is one over 10 to the power of a hundred. One over one followed by 101 zeros. 101 zeros. Now we can see. This number completely destroys that 10 to the power of 25. So anyone who's talking about the astronomically large number of planets that's out there, and the astronomically large number of places that life could be, if we seeded every single one of those planets, every single one of them with bacteria, like we were seeded with, for want of another word, a few billion years ago here on Earth. And even if we made every single one of those planets really friendly, bio-friendly, gave it the right conditions, lots of oxygen, lots of water, oceans, wind, lightning, sun, just the right temperature. Even if we made all the planets like that, there would be no chance if this sequence of events was unique, if this sequence of events was unique that it should be replicated out there anywhere at all. Now, 
many people might say, and this is a reasonable criticism of this, is that there could be various ways, various evolutionary paths that could lead to a human being. That could lead. But again, that raises the question of convergent evolution. If there were these multiple ways of arriving at intelligent, creative thinking people, then we should have seen other examples of that arise independently here on Earth. But again, how long would we have to have waited in Australia for it to have evolved people? The most complicated creatures that existed here in Australia five million years ago were kangaroos and some wombats, possums. If we left them isolated as an experiment for another million, 10 million, 100 million, billion years, does anyone expect that those creatures will evolve into something creative, intelligent, and able to send radio signals and perhaps travel across the galaxy? There's no reason to think that. There's no reason to think that because evolution doesn't work that way. That if the conditions are right, those creatures will just remain the same. You need selection pressure for evolution to really to cause diversity and to take uh, advantage of variation. And of course, that, that can happen around the universe. But there's no reason to presume that there is this intelligence niche. And, and what Lineweaver calls this is the planet of the apes hypothesis, the planet of the apes hypothesis, that when you take away the human beings out of the situation, that there is this niche left behind, there's this place for animals to evolve into because there's nothing filling that particular niche. And so the kangaroos will actually evolve into people. Because in the Planet of the Apes, the premise of the movie is the human beings are wiped out for whatever reason. And years later, uh, it is discovered um, by, is it time travelers? I can't remember. Other human beings from the future or something? Um, anyway, the, the, the apes, the great apes, the chimpanzees, the orangutans, they, they evolve into people. They become fully functioning, creative people that have technology and civilization just like human beings do. In other words, there is an arrow to evolution that Darwinian blind evolution will take a great ape and turn it into a person left long enough, if left long enough. This is just a misconception. It's a misconception about how evolution works. And so Lineweaver's point is, and so is Slezak's point, that an answer to the Fermi paradox is we're utterly alone. The mathematics, on the one hand, doesn't make any sense. There simply aren't enough planets. The universe isn't big enough to ensure that evolution is going to lead to complicated life forms because it only happened here on Earth once. There have been countless millions of species, 99.9% .9 of which have gone completely extinct, none of which showed any sign of creative intelligence like us, except for our common ancestor, okay, and those other species that we evolved from. So I'm really interested here in the common ancestor that was the first species that was able to, um, you know, create explanations. Because that, that first creative explainer, that first universal explainer, whatever it was, whatever species that was, it makes perfect sense to me that that first species would split into other species, because they would have been as we know, tribal, and they would have separated from one another, moved around Africa into separate places, perhaps moved up to Asia, whatever. They moved around, they got away from one another, 
and they were separated for a sufficient amount of time such that they evolved into a separate species. This is the way speciation occurs, okay? All you need to do is to separate the tribes for long enough and you will have different species. And I imagine that really primitive people would have done exactly that, ending up with different species of humans. And then eventually, one of the species, humans, comes along and the humans manage to win the race in survival for whatever reason, whatever the case, whatever the case, we're the only ones left. We're the only extant universal explainers. The other ones that existed have long since gone extinct. But again, I'm just emphasizing the point that I think all of those other species that were like us or had the capacity to think like us, to do art like us, to do thinking like us, create explanations like us, be creative like us, uh, they came from the same place. They came from the same universal uh, original universal explainer. So that's it. They're, they're the things that I wanted to say today about that particular issue. The argument that everyone already knows about the astronomically large universe that we live in with the astronomically large number of planets that's in it, to be countered by this idea that the biologically large number of uh, small, probable, small probability that there is of any line, any, any, any sequence of events in evolutionary terms leading to a person is so exceedingly small that that biological number completely blows the astronomical one out of the water. The biological number is far bigger than the astronomical one. We should say when you've got a really huge number, that number is not astronomical, that's biological. That's how unlikely that um, thing is to occur, or that's how amazingly vast that thing happens to be, how big that number happens to be. Now, do I believe any of this? Again, I think I'm saying this for about the fourth time. No, I don't believe any of it. I don't believe that we are alone in the universe. I just don't know. I don't believe the universe is teeming with life. We just don't know. I don't think that the aliens are terribly hostile and are coming after us, because I think that if they make progress in science, then they'll make progress across all the domains, across everywhere of necessity. Knowledge is this unified whole. You can't hold one area of knowledge completely static, making no progress whatsoever, while all the other kinds you make progress in. Okay, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. And it's especially true of morality, because morality is kind of the, the underpinnings, the conditions in which a society either flourishes or doesn't. And if the morality isn't right, and therefore the politics isn't right, the civilization won't be right, and you won't have this open-ended stream of knowledge creation possible. It won't be possible. You'll have censorship and violence. You'll have an uncaring disregard for other life forms, uh, both your neighbors and other species. But that's not the story here on Earth. We know already that people are converging. They are converging on moral truth in the same way we're converging on scientific truth and every other kind of truth. So are there aliens out there? No one knows. I don't believe any of this, but I think it's very useful to have in your toolkit of discussion when you're, because these discussions are interesting. These discussions can um, cause creativity in one's own mind about the possibilities. But I think it's important to have these in the toolkit. It's not enough to just say, well, the government has got a conspiracy and they're not telling us about the aliens they found. I think that's, I think that's ridiculous, but that's a topic for another time. But the simple argument that the universe is just so vast, there must be aliens out there, I think is 
has got a good criticism, a couple of good criticisms against it, which themselves can be criticised. I admit that fully, and I haven't dealt with the criticism that exists out there. I've mentioned this book before on the podcast. It's called Rare Earth by Ward and Brownlee, an absolutely brilliant book that goes into even more of the details about what happened here on Earth in order that complicated life, including ourselves, arose. All of the very strange happen chance um, occurrences that happened that, that make this story of, well, the universe is just so vast, there has to be a vast number of civilizations out there, make that story seem to be lacking in hope at times. But there are counters to this, okay? There are all sorts of counters that one might make. Namely, we don't know everything about how evolution works. We, we, we know some of it, we don't know everything. So it very well may be the case that there is a mechanism whereby evolution leads to increasing complexity in ways that we don't quite understand. And there's a certain kind of complexity, ours, this creative complexity, where providence or something else that we don't fully understand yet causes the laws of physics to be such that universal explainers are a kind of structure in the universe that the universe is built for, in a sense. I don't believe that either, okay? I don't believe any of this, I keep on saying it. It's just different ways of approaching this interesting issue. Um, so I'll leave it there for now. Um, I'll have another episode out soon, um, but for now, see you next time. I do hope you enjoyed that discussion. This has just been me freeform, completely ranting and talking about something that's of interest to me and of interest to, uh, I know, many people who follow me and many people who I talk to in real life about this stuff as well. So I thought I'd just put it into one nice little condensed form so that it was here for posterity. Um, until next episode, which should be out very soon as well, um, look out for that one. Um, see you. Bye-bye.